Old Testament reading this morning is first Isaiah 10, I mean, excuse me, Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 14, then over to Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. The page number there is in the, in the bulletin if you'd like to look it up. Isaiah 7, verse 10 to 14, and then 9, verses 1 through 7. Loved ones, this is God's Word. Let's pay full attention to it. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 1-7, through 7, then tells us a little bit more about this promised one, this Emmanuel to come. Isaiah 9, 1-7. through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Our New Testament reading and our sermon text here, Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, 
and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, you have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? We don't need the words of a mere man. We need your word. We need Christ in all his fullness, in all his grace, in all his saving power. We need him. So by your spirit now, please work on our hearts and speak your word to us and, and, and give us a sweeter communion and a stronger union with our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray for his sake. Amen. So we're starting this series in the Gospel of Matthew. We began it last week, looking at who Jesus is. That's really the fundamental question that Matthew and the other Gospel writers are asking and answering in the Gospels. They're trying to present to the world a witness, a faithful testimony about who Jesus is. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which we looked at last week, gives us the, the beginning of the story. It starts with a genealogy, uh, not perhaps the way we would start a story, not exactly the, uh, uh, the hook that catches you. Uh, but as we saw last time, it, what, what Matthew's doing there is he's starting the origins story of Christ. Right, Christ, that, that word is, is the word Messiah. This is the Christ, the long-expected, the long-promised Messiah who's going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, is going to save his people. And Matthew's saying, here's the origin story of the Christ. Here's where he comes from. Here's his lineage. And it's vital that he start this way because the Christ has to be what? He has to be born of of David. He has to be a son of David. And so Matthew goes to great lengths in that genealogy to show that he is the Christ, the son of David, the promised son who would come, be the greater David, the new king, establish the kingdom and, and fulfill God's promises to David that there would be a, a king there on the throne of Israel forever. But as you come to the end of that opening genealogy in Matthew's gospel, there's a problem. There's two problems. The first is, uh, as the genealogy there ends in verse 17, it says this, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Do you, do you notice the, the problem there? The problem is that Joseph, which Matthew's just gone to this great effort to show us, he's the son of David, Joseph isn't the father. So how is Jesus, the promised son of David, from this line all the way back to David if Joseph isn't the father? The genealogy there just says that, uh, that Joseph uh, was married to Mary and she gave birth to Jesus, but it doesn't tell us that Joseph was the father. And of course, he wasn't the father. And you can imagine... You can imagine the, the Jews of Jesus' day coming after this and saying, well, look, he's not actually born of the line of David. How do you answer that? So that's one problem that is there that, the, that Matthew is going to be endeavoring to answer. The other issue is that when, when Matthew says that this is the story of Jesus Christ, he announces that the Messiah has come. 
It's like a flare going off in a dark night. Everybody sees it. Everybody notices it. It's brilliant, it, 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 and it attracts attention. Uh, but, but it doesn't always attract the right kind of attention. There were all these different ideas about what the Christ would be and what he would do, and people had their own opinions about who the Christ would be, and for the large part, they're not biblical. They're not right. That's why we see so much hesitancy on Jesus' part throughout the Gospel accounts to actually refer to himself as the Christ because it's so loaded with misconceptions about who the Christ will actually be. So Matthew, as he, as he turns from that opening genealogy now to the next section in his Gospel, he's still telling the origin story of the Christ, the Messiah. He wants to address those two problems. First, you know, is this the son of David or isn't this the son of David? Is this Christ, Jesus, fit to be the Messiah or isn't he? And then, what kind of Christ is he? What's his mission? What's he here to do? And those two things are going to structure our thoughts this morning, loved ones, as we work through this together. First, where did Jesus come from? What's his identity? And second, what did he come for? What's his mission? So identity and mission. Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. Matthew starts... By looking at Joseph, he zooms in on the character of Joseph. Luke will look more at the character of Mary, but Matthew, Matthew wants to look at Joseph, and so he turns our attention there, and he tells us the story of of, of how Joseph finds out about Mary being with child. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. This is a, it's a familiar story, and so the scandal of it can somewhat be lost on us, I think. But there's Joseph, and he's. He's been uh, probably, uh, uh, his, his parents and, and Mary's parents probably arranged this marriage quite a while ago when they were younger. Uh, he's grown up now. They, they've actually become betrothed or engaged. And in that culture, engagement was a, was a much more binding thing than it is in our culture. Um, it meant that you were legally man and wife, even though you didn't have the ceremony yet, and you didn't consummate the marriage yet. Typically, you'd wait a year to do that. So they're betrothed. She's his wife. And then, you know, he's, he's getting ready for the wedding. We don't know how long it is to the wedding, but he's preparing for it. He's probably preparing the home. He's a carpenter. He's probably doing a lot of the work himself. He's getting ready for things. He's looking forward to this marriage. And then, somehow or other, we're not sure how, he finds out that Mary's with child. Maybe she tells him. Maybe he doesn't believe her account. We don't know. Maybe he just starts to notice the way she's changing. We're not sure, but, but he comes to the conclusion that something's happened, she's fallen into sin, and, and he doesn't know what to do. He's wrestling with what to do. The text tells us that he's a just man, he's a righteous man, and he's trying to assess what's the right thing to do. This is a conservative culture, much more conservative uh, than ours. Even in our day, this would be a scandal, Right? How much of a scandal was it in, in their day? He's wrestling with, with what to do. Under the Mosaic law, a, a woman guilty of adultery deserves the death penalty. This wasn't really practiced at that time, but still it shows you the seriousness of this sin and, and the, you know, the, the thing that Joseph is, is wrestling with here would be a scandal for him and the shame would come on him too if he agrees to marry her. But at the same time, he doesn't want to be harsh. So he decides he's going to divorce 
he's going to call off the, 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 the marriage. He's going to divorce her. But he's going to do it quietly, secretly, so that he doesn't put her to open shame. There he is. He's made this decision. And then, in the night, he has a dream. And the Lord comes to him through, through an angel in a vision. An angel of the Lord, a messenger from God, appears to him in a dream and, uh, and, and says to him, Joseph... Son of David, highlighting that he is of the Davidic line. He's, he's in line there for the, the royal line of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is begotten in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the, the angel is telling Joseph, Joseph, what, is, what has been conceived in Mary's womb is not from any man but it's from the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is this then? Why is this so important for Jesus' identity, loved ones? Why does it, why does it matter that Jesus is not born of man, but he's born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit? What's it mean for who he is? Why does it matter? Well, first, I think it identifies him as the Son of God. Matthew doesn't use this title, Son of God, explicitly here, but he's, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus has divine origins. Something unique, something unlike anything else that has ever happened is going on here. And, and in just a few verses, Matthew's going to say that this child's name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And between that verse and here where he's describing how the one to be born is, is uh, the, 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 the uh, begotten of the Holy Spirit, he's saying this is not just a man in Mary's womb. This isn't just a human baby. This is God in Mary's womb. This is God himself come down in the flesh. God come down into the form of an embryo. The infinite, eternal Son wrapped in flesh. Charles Wesley's great Christmas hymn puts it so well. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So that's the first thing that, what, that Matthew is saying here. This child is from the Holy Spirit. It's there because God himself has come down, taken on flesh, and entered Mary's womb. Glorious mystery. Jesus is God himself. This is crucial to his identity. That's part of what's going on here, is, as Matthew shows us that this Jesus is born of the Spirit. The second thing, I think, though, is that um, the idea that uh, the Christ would come was wrapped up with the idea that he would be the man of the Spirit. That, that, that he would be filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God would rest on him with power. The Old Testament anticipates this uh, with Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, of course, David's father. So we're talking about the Davidic line. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So, Jesus being conceived by the Spirit also means this. This is the Christ. What Matthew's saying to, the, uh, he's saying to us, he's saying to those who would be doubting that Jesus is actually qualified to be the Christ, he's saying he's perfectly qualified to be the Christ. He's the Son of God, the eternal God come in the flesh, and He's the one born of the Spirit. The one in whom the Spirit rests, perfectly equipped by all this to be the promised Messiah. 
Can't be any doubt, Matthew is saying. You can still imagine someone saying, well, 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 he's not actually born of Joseph, though. How do you answer that? But then Matthew goes on and he shows us how Joseph responds. How does Joseph respond once he has the vision? He goes and he does what the angels commanded him to do. He takes Mary as his wife and he legally adopts the baby. And we come to, if you come to, and you look at the end of the text, uh, verse 25, and he called his name Jesus. He's, that's, that's Joseph saying, I am adopting this child as my own. I'm going to raise it as my own. And this child's going to be my heir. So legally then, this is the, the royal son of David, the one who is in line for the throne of Israel. And so what Matthew is doing here, loved ones, is he's saying in every possible way, Jesus is perfectly equipped to be the Christ, to be the Messiah for us. Then he turns. Jesus is perfectly equipped to be the Christ. And then he turns and says, now, what's the Christ going to do? What kind of a Christ is he going to be? And that's where we look now at Jesus' mission. We saw where he came from and his identity, and now we see his mission. What is his mission? That's our second point this morning. How would you answer that question? In one sentence, perhaps. What did Jesus come to do? Um, probably lots of people would give lots of different answers. You can imagine someone saying, well, Jesus came to show us what love is like. That's, that's true. That's true. That's part of why he came, to reveal God to us. But is that, is that his mission? Is that what he came to accomplish? Maybe, maybe someone would say he came to show us how to live righteously, how to live well, how to live a moral life. But you can imagine someone saying, well, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't need Christ for that. You can imagine the Jews saying, we've got the law for that. The law shows us how to be, uh, how to be right with God. We don't need the Messiah to do that. The Jews of Jesus' day probably would have said, you know what we need a Christ for? We need him to come kick out the Romans. They've taken over. They're, they're oppressing us. They're, they're, we have no political, real political freedom. We have no real social flourishing. We're under oppression. Come drive out the Romans. That's what we need a Christ to do. A warrior, a king who's going to give us political power and influence. The Jews were right, I think, to look for the Messiah to free them from oppression. But the problem was that they weren't looking for uh, uh, freedom from the right kind of oppression. They had misdiagnosed their problem. Their problem wasn't Rome. The problem was their sin. It was their rebellion against God. And, and loved ones, that is all of our problem, isn't it? That is our fundamental problem. Our sin holds us captive. We are shackled by it. We are chained up by it. This is what, this is what the Scriptures testify to. I think we also, like, like the Jews of Jesus' day, don't want to admit that our, that our big problem, our number one problem, isn't our circumstances, uh, not the things in life that don't agree with us, that we don't like, not our, not our um, health concerns or, or financial concerns. Our number one problem is our sin. That's fundamental. We don't want to admit that. I read an article recently in a magazine which was, was discussing this idea, and um, it was looking at, the author was looking at this short story 
by Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was a 19th century American writer. I've never read the short story, but I read this article, and the image it gave from Hawthorne's short story was, was quite interesting as it makes this point. Uh, the short story is called Earth's Holocaust, and in the story, it's fictional, um, this, this group of people decides to get together and make a bonfire. And in this bonfire, they're going to throw everything that is polluted and wrong with American and Western culture and society. Now, mind you, it's 1844 when this story is written. But they still saw lots of things wrong with society. So they decide, we're going to throw, every, we're going to throw in everything that's polluted and corrupt. And they start throwing in some things. And at first, the fire is a rather small fire. And then it starts to grow as they discover more and more things that have got to go. Before you know it, they've thrown in the whole of Western culture and history and everything, and all the, all the musicians and artists and literature, all of, it, all of it goes into the flames. They finally even throw the Bible in, thinking it's corrupted. And then as this, uh, you know, they think they've created this, this new, brand new world that is going to flourish. But at the end of the story, as the people think they've laid the groundwork for this new and better world, the author to this, the article writes, a mysterious figure appears at the end, warning them that they forgot to throw in the one thing that really mattered, the human heart. Hawthorne writes this, and unless they hit upon some method of purifying that foul cavern, from it will reissue all the shapes of wrong and misery, the same old shapes or worse ones, which they've taken such a vast deal of trouble to consume to ashes. Take my word for it. It will be the old world yet. That's what we see with Noah, right? God comes in the flood and he wipes out the sinfulness of, of, of man by destroying the sinners. But after the flood, sin crops up again. Loved ones, it is our sin and our own hearts which is our fundamental problem. It is sin, and it's also the consequences of sin. It's the way sin separates us from God, places us under His curse. We've lost what we were made for. We were made for Him. We are made for fellowship with Him. The way, the way a child is made for fellowship with his parents, the way a bride and a groom are made for fellowship with each other, we were made for fellowship with God, and we've lost it by our sin. We've lost what we're made for. And Jesus comes, and His mission, as Matthew puts it here, is what? He's come to be our Savior from our sins, who also brings us back to God. That's how the angel gives Jesus' mission to us in those two categories. He starts by giving us the name for this baby. Joseph is to call the baby Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Jesus wasn't the only Jesus. Uh, there were other babies named Jesus. It was probably a fairly common name, given that it was the name Joshua from the Old Testament, a great hero of the Old Testament. But why does God pick out this particular name for the God-man? Well, I think because of what it means. As we've said, it means Yahweh saves, God saves, the Lord saves. The, the Lord alone is the one who can save His people. As, as uh, Jesus has given that name, it's picking up on another old, important Old Testament theme that the Lord alone is the one who saves. We see this in Isaiah, Isaiah 33:22. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Or Isaiah 35, 4. Behold, your God will come and save you. 
Jesus' name is the Lord is the one who saves. That's what it means. He's come to deal with our fundamental problem. He's come to save us from our sins. Now, loved ones, I want you to notice as we look at what Jesus' name means here, uh, we, we look at the text, and uh, there as it tells us his name, wh- who is he going to save? Is it everyone? Is this, uh, is this an open-ended salvation that he's going to make possible for everyone? Well, yes, the possibility of salvation is there for all who will believe. But is Jesus coming to save every last person from their sins? Is this a blank check that he, kinda, he writes you know, for, all, for all the debts? Or does he come for someone in particular? The text says he's come to save his people from their sins. Loved ones, I want you to sense how personal that is, that Jesus came to do this for you who believe in him. He came for your sins to save you from your most fundamental need and your most fundamental problem, that you were on his mind and his heart as he suffered and died. That's why he came, for your sake. My boys were recently watching Finding Nemo. And um, in, that, in that movie, you've probably seen it, right? There's the dad fish, Marlin, and he loses his son, Nemo. And his son is captured by, uh, uh, and, and taken and put into an uh, aquarium and a dentist's office. And the movie is the story of Marlin going to get his son back. And he goes through you know, all these dangers to go get his son. And, and that is you know, maybe a comical picture, but that's what's going on when Christ sets his affection on his people. Right, that, that it's not a general thing, this salvation from sins. He's come for you to save you because he loves you, loved ones. What does he do for us? How does he save us from our sins? Well, he does two things. He saves us from the guilt of sin. And he saves us from the power of sin. This is put so well uh, by the by the hymn, Rock of Ages, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. First then, Jesus is the one who cures us. He cleanses us from the guilt of our sin. You can't just, you can't just erase guilt. You can't just say it's not there and it doesn't exist. Right? Guilt is a debt. We have a debt to God. And if you have a debt, you can't just pretend it doesn't exist. Someone covers the cost. Either you cover it yourself, or you ask someone else to cover it for you, or you ask the person who the debt is owed to to absorb the cost of it themselves. Someone's got to pay for it. And that's what it's like with our sin. We owe a debt of trillions to the Lord by our sin. We, are, uh, we, we owe him the debt of original sin, Adam's sin. That's like inherited debt, right? That, that we've, we bear that because we are descended from Adam and he is our, he is our representative head. And then we've got the debt that we ourselves have accrued by all our sinful living and feeling and thinking and speaking. All the sins we've ever done, that's a debt that's piled up and piled up. We can't pay it. Jesus comes and he pays it. The one to whom the debt is owed says, I'll absorb the cost. I'll send my son. He'll pay the debt. The debt is death. The debt is hell. Jesus takes it. He pays it for us. What a glorious thing, loved ones, that Jesus does this for our sakes. He set his love on you to do this for you. Lay his life down for you. So he brings our account before God. He pays the debt. He brings the account to zero. He doesn't just wipe out the the, the debt, though, and bring the account to zero. 
as he clears us from our guilt. What else does he do? You know, as I was thinking over this, I was thinking that it's interesting that Jesus doesn't simply come from heaven as a man. He could have been incarnate as a grown man. Didn't have to be born as a baby and grow up and live for 30 years before starting his earthly ministry and laying down his life. He could have just come and the next day gone to the cross, paid our debt. But instead he comes and he lives a whole life. And what's he doing for all those years when he's not in the public eye doing the public ministry? What's he doing? He's keeping the law perfectly. So that, so that our debt isn't just erased, but we're given a positive account of righteousness before God. As, as, as we trust in Christ, two things happen. right? Our debt is canceled, and we're given this glorious, positive righteousness. It's called the great exchange. I trade my sin. He gives me His righteousness. He takes my curse. He gives me His blessing. Jesus is the cure for our guilt. He doesn't just save us from the guilt of sin, though. He also saves us from the power of sin. He also gets to work by His Spirit in our hearts. You know, He gets down and starts to do heart surgery. You know, freeing us from the guilt of sin is a forensic thing, right? It's a once-for-all declaration. It's done. But then he gets down into, and, and he gets to work in our hearts, in our lives, saying, I'm going to change you now. I'm going to, I, I, he, he breaks the stranglehold of sin over our hearts, frees us from it, like the Lord bringing the people out of Egypt, right? That, that slavery is over, and he strengthens us to start obeying him again. And by his spirit, he works in us to, to, to teach us how to obey the Lord. Loved ones, and so in, in both of these ways, to be the cure for the guilt of sin and the power of sin, this is why Jesus came. This is his mission, to do this for you. It's what his name means. It's a, such a fitting name, right, that he is called Savior. J.C. J. Ryle, bishop from the, let's see, 19th century, J.C. Ryle comments on this. He says, Jesus is a very encouraging name to heavy-laden sinners. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords might lawfully have taken some more high-sounding title, but he did not do so. The Son of God was content to call himself Savior. It is his office and his delight to show mercy. So he's our Savior, loved ones. Isn't this exactly what you and I need? And he does it. This is his mission. This is his number one objective. Save us from our sins. But then there's a second name, which gives us a little more in Jesus' mission. And that's in verse 23. He'll be called Emmanuel, we're told, in verse 23, which means God with us. We already said this name points us to Jesus' divinity. The fact that he is the God-man, the eternal Son of God, wrapped in human flesh as an embryo in Mary's womb. It also means, though, that this isn't just about his identity. This also tells us something about Jesus' mission. God with us tells us something about his mission. So the name Jesus says his mission is to save his people from their sins. The name Emmanuel says, here's the mission of his mission. He's saving you from your sins so that God can be with you and you can be with God. That's, that's the point. That's, uh, that's what the whole Bible's about, isn't it? God getting sinners 
back to himself, to what they were made for. So they can have fellowship with him again and, and, and enjoy his friendship and blessing again. That's what, that's what Scripture is all about. That's what the covenant of the Old Testament dispensation is all about. It's about God making way for his people to have fellowship with himself. And so, as Christ comes, Matthew's saying, now it's finally clear. The way back to God is, is through Jesus Christ so that we can have God with us again. He saves us from our sins so we can have fellowship with Him. Again, Calvin comments on this. He says, If we are united to Christ by faith, we possess God. If we are united to Christ by faith, we possess God. This is in fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Matthew starts out with this. He starts out his gospel by telling us Jesus is going to give us fellowship again with God. And then it's interesting, if you look at the end of his gospel, Matthew 28, verse 20, and some of the final words that Jesus says, what does he say to his disciples? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right, early in the gospel, chapter 1, his name is God with us. And at the end of the gospel, I am with you always. Jesus is saying at the end of the gospel, I've done it. I am God with you forever. I am with you always. Loved ones, I want you to see just how significant this is for you. That Jesus says that he is with you, God with you, always. It's not a temporary thing. He didn't come to be Emmanuel, God with us, for 30 years in his earthly ministry. And then stop being God with us and go to glory. He is God with us forever. So that means, loved ones, that we have fellowship with the living God in Jesus Christ. And that's not something that we are waiting for. It's not something that was only in the past. That's something we have now when we are trusting in Christ and walking with Him. So, loved ones, this is who Jesus is. And this is what He came to do. This is his mission. He came to save you, to bring you to himself, all those who trust in him. He came to deal with our most fundamental problem, and he came to meet our most basic need, to deal with our sin and bring us to God. So, loved ones, won't you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Put all your confidence in him and, 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 and seek him and love him and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such a Savior. We thank you that he's brought us to yourself. We pray that we would treasure this above all else and trust Christ with all our heart. We pray this for his sake. Amen.